Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, October 19th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we've got the biggest and baddest banks earnings review this side of the Mississippi. And thanks to technology, anyone on either side of the Mississippi can hear it. Joining me to take us through it all is my partner in crime, certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Pretty good. That was the coolest intro to a show I've ever heard you do. <laughs> you liked that, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, so you got to get creative. That's that's a fun part about doing these shows. You get a little bit, uh, you get a little bit of creative freedom to kind of go in there and uh, do what you want, as long as it doesn't have to be bleeped out, right? That's that's the line. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, that's something that's changed since we stopped doing them. You know, pre-recorded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sometimes what happens in the studio stays in the studio, and now it's all out there in front for everyone to see. But, Ah, uh, we digress. Uh, Matt, last week was a very big week. Earnings Palooza kicked off, and and as tradition uh, is is with every quarter, the big banks were the were the ones that really got us got us rolling here. Uh, we wanted to go ahead and devote today's show to actually taking a look back at five of the earnings reports that really stood out to us. We've got J.P. Morgan, we've got Wells Fargo. We've got Goldman Sachs, we've got Morgan Stanley, we've got Bank of America, and and let's go ahead and kick it off with J.P. Morgan. Uh, this is a bank, Matt. That, you know, we we there's a lot to like about this bank. I think maybe what we like the most about it, I, th- I think what I like the most about it, at least, is leadership. Right? I think Jamie Dimon is is certainly um, one of a kind. And I, I don't know about you, and I, and I want to get your take on this. I don't know about you, but when I was reading through the call, there was so much language in there that just leads me to believe that Jamie Dimon is taking such a broad approach to this point in time, this environment that the banks are dealing with, the pandemic and whatnot. He, he is taking such a broad approach. J.P. Morgan is seemingly prepared for any and all outcomes Regardless the scenario, which I, I mean, I'm not a shareholder, but if if I were, I'd, I'd be, certainly be very encouraged. Um, but but I want to kick it to you in in regard to J.P. Morgan's earnings release. Um, what were one of the one or two of the things that stood out to you that, that this bank is doing really well? Well, first, um, you mentioned what Jamie Dimon said. I, know, I remember earlier in the year, kind of similar point to what you you just said. During the height of the pandemic, they said they ran their own stress test. Yeah, you remember that? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, banks are required to run stress tests every year. The Federal Reserve requires it. They ran one that was much more, you know, intense than what the Fed requires, and still passed with flying colors. So, like you said, they are ready for anything. Um, one thing that stood out to me that Jamie Dimon said this quarter: we met, we've been talking a lot about brokerage consolidation in the in the past few weeks. And he said they are that J.P. Morgan Chase is very interested in acquisitions on the asset management front. So I thought that was really interesting. You might see a little more consolidation there. But just getting to the numbers, um, J.P. Morgan Chase, they they beat on the top and bottom line, which we don't pay that much attention to headline numbers. But it's interesting to know if you know if a stock moves one way or another, that that's usually why. And I mean, it's it it, it kind of gives you the big picture of how the business is doing. But thinking it a little bit more important, one one reason J.P. Morgan's the most closely watched bank earnings report, it's not just because it's the biggest, it's because it's the first. 
every every earnings season, they're the first of the big banks to report. Right. I think by like an hour. I think I think Citigroup <laughs> was like an hour later. Yeah. But even so, that's like all eyes on J.P. Morgan to <laughs> to see how things are going. You remember how it used to be based on Alcoa? It wasn't even that long ago. Like, I do. Alcoa was what kicked this thing off. And talk about like like the like who cares? I mean, I I hate to throw nothing burger out there, but it sure feels like Alcoa is just kind of a big nothing burger these days. Right, I feel like for a long time they were famous because they kicked off earnings season. <laughs> yep, I think you're right. Um, but but you know, now it's pretty much J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, so th- they report, I think, seven a.m. on their on earnings day. I think everyone else that reports that day reports at eight. Yeah. But anyway, so J.P. They the big thing people were looking at was how bad is the pandemic going to be on banks? And the way you've been able to tell that so far was how much they're setting aside to cover loan losses. Um, between the first and second quarters, for example, J.P. Morgan Chase set aside $15 billion or so in anticipation of loan losses, which if the the COVID recession was really worse than expected, that might not have been enough. Yeah. But it turns out that it was enough. Banks seem to be pumping the brakes on their loan loss reserves. And J.P. Morgan Chase actually released a little bit of reserves this quarter instead of building it up, which is a really, really good sign. Um you know they have a pretty big investment banking operation, so they got a. Uh, you know, trading tends to do better when the market's volatile, and that's exactly what we saw here. Uh, bond trading revenue was up thirty percent year over year. Um, their investment banking fee revenue was up double digits. So the investment banking aspect of a lot of these banks we're going to talk about, including J.P. Morgan Chase, really kind of held them up in the face of a poor interest rate environment. You know, when, when interest rates are at rock bottom levels, it's not exactly a great profit model for companies that loan money. Um, but with, with investment banking tends to do better during hard times, and that really helped balance out their second quarter results um, in terms of the, the losses in like interest margin, things like that. Is there anything going on um, that, that gives you pause or something you feel like investors ought to be keeping their eyes on. I mean, this is really one of the best, one of the best run banks out there, I think. And so this is kind of one that I, I, I put them in a little bit of a class of their own, but you know, nobody's perfect. I mean, it, there's got to be something out there that, that we, we want to be watching. Well, like you said, they're, they're pretty much prepared for anything, but this could be a bad recession if things don't go well. Um, if we don't get stimulus, for example, it could, it, if, if, the low interest environment continues to get worse. You know, mortgage rates plunge to like one or two percent from from the current three <laughs> yeah. percent. You know, that could that would be a, a problem. Um, but what you want to keep an eye on really are the the macroeconomic factors uh, that 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 govern bank profits. Like like I'm watching unemployment when I want to see how bad it's going to be for banks and and stimulus. And I mean, you, you want to. Th- the the fact that they released some reserves is definitely a good sign, but you don't want to see that reverse course. Yeah, it's good. Is really the, the number to keep an eye on. Well, let's move over to Wells Fargo. This is uh this is the one that has sort of taken Bank of America's place as being you know the, the financial media's uh, whipping post, so to speak. It just seems like they can't really do anything right. And you know, I mean, this it wasn't the greatest quarter in the world. I think we all kind of expected that. But then, of course, you have. That whole PPP loan scandal, where you've got employees lying to obtain loans—I mean, it seems like it's just one thing after another. And and you know, a quote that came from the call basically said their top priority it continues to be the implementation of risk control and regulatory work. And I I, I feel like 
that maybe is top priority 1A, and 1B, I mean, clearly is the culture. I mean, there's stuff going on within this company that, that hasn't fully really been fixed yet. But let's talk a little bit. Let's give them, let's, let's go glass half full here first. What, <laughs> what about this quarter for Wells Fargo did you like? <laughs> well, to be fair, they're more closely scrutinized than every other bank right now. So you're going to find a lot more. Seems like they earned it, but go on. <laughs> they, oh, uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. They absolutely did. Like like um like Buffett says, you know, when you, when you find a cockroach in the kitchen, there's usually not just one. Yeah. Um. So now that they found the cockroach in the kitchen, which was the fake account scandal, now everything else they do is really scrutinized. And the, the latest thing was purely employees doing things on their own. It's it's worth mentioning. That's not it. They didn't defraud anybody. It didn't affect any of Wells Fargo's customers. It was employees behaving badly. Yeah, and it wasn't really. So, it, it likely wasn't even really a faulty incentive structure. I mean, it, it seems like it really was just just like you said. I mean, it, just just a few bad apples. Right, and and because Wells Fargo is so scrutinized, they just kind of fell under the microscope. Um, but this is a stock that trades for sixty percent of its book value, wow. which is, I mean. A while ago, Wells Fargo not not a while ago, Wells Fargo was the most valuable bank stock by price to book. Um, I mean, they they were regularly trading at you know one and a half times book or even more, and so they're like they're trading for literally about less than half of what they used to. Um, so, but going into this corner quarter, their uh, net interest income was down by nineteen percent, which Wells Fargo is purely a commercial bank, so this is to be expected in a low interest environment. Um, they missed earnings, but they were profitable, which is a, definitely a good sign. Um, remember the second quarter they had, or the yeah, I'm sorry, the, the second quarter they had a big, um, you know, big red arrow there with oh yeah, with profitability. And <laughs> yeah. remember they had to cut they had to cut their dividend uh, because they had to set aside so much in reserves. That wasn't the case this quarter. They were profitable. They earned enough that if this continues, they'll be able to reinstitute their dividend where where it was. Um, they did set aside loan losses. They were the only of the big banks, I think, that actually had to build their reserves this quarter. But it was by less than was expected. Uh, and they were they were expected to set aside about $1.8 billion. They set aside about $0.8 billion. So that was good news. Um, that was That's compared to $9.5 billion in the second quarter that they had to set aside for losses. Holy cow. So this, this is definitely an improvement. <laughs> yeah. um, but like I said, Wells Fargo is, out of the five we're talking about, is the closest thing to a pure savings and loan that we're getting out of the big banks. So they are the most affected by the pandemic because they don't have that investment banking revenue to really boost their their bottom line in, in tough times, like like all the other big banks do. And it's really weighing on them. That's I mean, it the, the fake account scandal was chapter one, and then the COVID pandemic was chapter two in terms of just their underperformance of the market. And it doesn't seem to be letting up anytime soon. Although this quarter didn't look as bad as expected, it's still worse than the other banks because they are purely on the commercial side of the business, and you know the low interest rates are just punching them in the face right now. Yeah, and you know I was looking at this earlier before we started taping, just taking a look at all five of these banks, their year-to-date performance. And and listen, no one no one's lighting the world on fire. I mean, you've got Morgan Stanley leading the pack, and they're essentially flat for the year. Um, all of them trailing the market, but Wells Fargo is just having a, just a, just a really tough year. Shares down close to sixty percent. I guess my question with Wells Fargo before we move on. You have to believe, given the scale of this bank, given its presence in the mortgage space, given its presence in the consumer banking space, I mean, this is not a bank that's just going to go away. It just it can't. It can't happen. 
it feels like this really is a value play, right? I don't feel like this is a value trap. It may take a little bit longer, but given how far the stock has fallen, I mean, how are you looking at this? Are you looking at this more as a value play, or do you feel like this is more like a value trap? Well, I was for all of their flaws, Wells Fargo has a pretty impressive history of, of low-risk lending. This is how they were able to pick up Wachovia at a fire sale price during the financial crisis. This is how they, you know, th- their stock got hit worse than most in the 08-09 period. They're, they have a, a long history of responsible risk management. So I don't think that's changed. I don't think their loan loss, and we saw just the loan losses, the reserves they had to set aside were a lot less than expected this quarter because we're seeing this, the, the you know, the COVID losses kind of play out a little bit better, more favorably than expected. I see them definitely at 60% of book value as a value play. I don't think Wells Fargo is going to go away. I don't even really think there's a good chance that any of the big banks are going to get acquired. I just think they're going to you know, survive this storm and move on. Um, I don't really think it's going to do that much permanent damage to their profitability. Um, I mean, the bigger issue is the interest rates for them. You know, The low interest environment's killing them. The 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 Federal Reserve penalty, the restriction where they're not allowed to grow, I think is still in place. To, I know it was lifted temporarily for PPP reasons, but I think generally that that Fed restriction is still in place. Um, but I th- I think they're gonna they're gonna make it. They're not gonna go away anytime soon. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, we love to give them a hard time here on the show for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> you look just not all that long ago. There's another example out there in, in Bank of America that listen, they went through their own stretch. Um, but but you know, focused leadership. Obviously, the scale of the company brought things back around. That's worked out pretty well for investors. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about Goldman Sachs because this, you know, this is kind of this is kind of the opposite of Wells Fargo, right? I mean, this is going to be more a story really about the the benefits of the investment banking operations, even while you know, credit growth for for Goldman remains a challenge. Yeah, well, I mean, Goldman, we've talked about before, is pushing more into the consumer space. But like you said, they're still mostly an investment bank. On the consumer side, their consumer banking revenue grew 50% year over year. There was a lot of good so news about Marcus on that call I saw. There was. And um, the biggest driver of that 50% was the Apple card, higher credit card lending balances. Um, but just th- their revenue was off the charts, up 30% year over year. Their earnings were almost $10 a share. That is the biggest quarter Goldman's ever had. So during the middle of the pandemic to have you know your record earnings, that's pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that shattered expectations. Um, and the reason, like I said, is because a lot of investment banking operations do better during tough times. Gold, uh, Goldman's trading revenue was up 29% year over year. Uh, asset management revenue was up 71%. I mean, they're they're firing on all cylinders. IPO um, underwriting was was doing phenomenally well. I mean, anyone who's followed the market knows that the IPO market has just exploded this year, um, and equity underwriting is a big part of Goldman's business. So, the investment banking business is doing the complete opposite of what Wells Fargo is doing. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually shocked that Goldman is not up for the year. Um, after reading numbers like this, and and not just this, the quarter before, if you remember the the second quarter was their second best quarter ever. So I mean, when you're seeing these kind of numbers, I mean, Go- Goldman trades for about let me, let me do the math real quick. Goldman trades for about twenty times this quarter's earnings. 
that that's a crazy low valuation. Um, and I, like I said, I'm shocked that Goldman's not a little more expensive than it is. Yeah, that, that's it. You know, it struck me as well. Like looking at this chart and the returns, I mean, Goldman down around ten percent for the year, and, and and given the results that they've brought in, uh, certainly feels like they could be better. But I, I guess that also is that that speaks a little bit to just the general feeling in the market today regarding banks writ large. I mean, they're all dealing with their fair sets of challenges. It's just, you know, thankfully for for Goldman Sachs, they they had that investment banking operation to fall back on. Um, investment banking revenue is also less consistent, it's worth mentioning. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point there. It's like a I mean, tr- it's like Disney's it's like Disney's theater division, right? It's lumpy. Sometimes it's good, sometimes right. it's not so great. Trading trading revenue goes like this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a roller coaster ride. Yeah. Um from quarter to quarter. So just because trading revenue was strong this year has no bearing on what it's going to do next year. Like as as opposed to commercial banking, you build up a, a you build your loan portfolio by a hundred billion dollars. That produces residual income that comes in quarter after quarter, whereas investment banking is a lot less predictable. So the market does discount that a little bit. Excellent point. Well, speaking of investment banking, let's talk a little bit about Morgan Stanley. And and I think the the thing that stood out to me with Morgan Stanley really was the Eaton Vance acquisition they announced. I mean, that was a pretty big deal. It's gonna gonna bring uh, you know a, a good chunk of change under their umbrella in in regard to assets under management and and give them a little bit more of an ESG presence, which I think is very forward thinking. Uh, but but what stood out to you from Morgan Stanley's core? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are the two biggest investment banks in the in the country. And they're really going two different directions when it comes to bringing their brands to the masses. You know, Goldman's doing the commercial thing with with Marcus and the Apple Card, things like that. Whereas Morgan Stanley's pushing into the brokerage space on the retail level. You know, they they just finalized the acquisition of E Trade. They're buying out Eaton Vance, the asset manager. Um, what really stood out to me, what I, I mentioned equity underwriting when we were talking about Goldman, how IPOs have just kind of been off the chart. Morgan Stanley's equity underwriting revenue more than doubled from the same quarter a year ago. That's pretty impressive. It just kind of indicates just how active, I guess you'd say, the, the IPO market has been this year. Um, trading revenue was strong up 20% year over year. Um, they earned more than the market had expected. The revenues were up 16% year over year. So the kind of key takeaway I had from, Mar- from Morgan Stanley is that they had a very strong quarter. They weren't quite what Goldman was in terms of just kind of a blowout record-setting quarter. But that's just because some of their business works a little bit differently, especially on the investment side. Goldman has a big portfolio of investments, and Morgan Stanley relies a little bit less on things like that. Um, but, the, you know, it, it's it. I couldn't find that much I didn't like in Morgan Stanley's report. Yeah. Yep. It seems like consolidation is certainly going to be a – a big theme of of their strategy going forward, at least in the near term. I mean, that 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 Eaton Vance acquisition um, they they saw as essentially inevitable if they didn't do it, someone else would. And, and I'd imagine they're already looking around to see what else they they might be able to bring into their uh, into into their universe as well. Um, let's go ahead and wrap it up with what I think is probably your favorite bank out there today as an investment, given given what we've talked about on the show here before. Um, bank of America. And and you know, again, this is this has been really an impressive story to watch from a number of different angles. But I mean I think that I think that Brian Moynihan, CEO Brian Moynihan, has has really done a tremendous job with the business, particularly given 
the situation that he stepped into, right? I mean, he, he did, she did turn the conversation around here and, and, you know, shareholders are certainly reaping the benefits of that today. And the quote that stood out to me on the call, because this really tells you what's on his mind, where his, where he's thinking um, is, is he said, and I quote, the operating environment continues to require more operational excellence than ever before. So it really feels like they're focusing, you know, not only on maintaining the culture of the business, but making sure that everything is in order and they're being as efficient and as effective as possible with what they have. Yeah, they've really done a fantastic job over the past decade. I mean, over the past few years, especially of just really prioritizing business efficiency, responsible lending, and it, it's really been reflected in their profitability. I've, I, I like Bank of America. You mentioned that they're probably my favorite, and you're right. And it's because they're probably the best combination of profitability and safety and growth in the banking space at that kind of evaluation. They trade for a significantly lower pri- uh, price to book multiple than, say, a JP Morgan Chase. And I would put their operations not, not necessarily on equal footing, but pretty close at this point. Uh, Bank of America is also a very a much more even mix of investment banking and consumer banking, which I really like because in times like this, it really helps kind of you know boost their revenue. And then in times when it's a really good consumer environment, they get to benefit from that as well. Um, just kind of running through some of the numbers that really stood out to me. Um, well, one, their charge off ratio declined from the second quarter to the third, which is definitely an encouraging sign. Like J.P. Morgan Chase, they released some of their reserves instead of building their reserves, which is very encouraging. That means that the, the impact of COVID isn't going to be quite what they thought it was going to be. Um, revenue overall was down 11%, much better than you know a Wells Fargo or, or pure commercial banks. Um, interest income was down 17%, but on the same time, consumer loans were up 5% year over year, which is pretty impressive given the environment. Consumer deposits, if you've been following that at all, people have been socking away money like crazy, which generally happens around a recession. <laughs> yeah. um, so dep- consumer deposits were up 21% year over year. Um, they had their second best investment banking quarter ever. This is where the investment banking kind of offset comes in. Um, investment banking fee income was up 15% year over year. It's just a really strong quarter on the investment side of the business. And like they they earned more than enough to cover their dividend they beat expectations but i wouldn't judge any of these banks on just the bottom line number right now you really have to look at what's going on like i said their their loan loss trends what's going on in the investment banking business um whether their interest income is holding up okay or not and growth i mean cons- growing your loan portfolio that's long-tailed income deposit portfolio gives you more capital to lend um and even before the pandemic, out of the big four, Bank of America was putting up the best growth numbers consistently. And, and I mean, you know, growing their loan portfolio by 4% when everyone else was at one or two, um, they'd been doing like slowly outperforming for, for a little while. So I like Bank of America for that reason. I think they're going to continue to improve their efficiency. And this might even accelerate uh, Moynihan's plans to do that. And it, I just see a very bright future for them. I see them, they're not quite at the J.P. Morgan Chase level, but I see them getting to equal footing before too long. Nice. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot here then, as I love to do, Matt. And, and uh, <laughs> this is neither here nor there. Um, but, you know, taking a look at this most recent, uh, this most recent quarter here, of all five banks right here, 
Um, if you if you had to crown a winner of this earnings season out of these five, who who would you who would you give the crown to? Uh, I'd have to give it to Goldman. I kind of thought was, the same if, thing. If, yeah, I think you're right. If I were if if I were to pick just one, just I mean, when you look at what was expected of them for the quarter, we knew they were going to have a strong quarter, but they just kind of just destroyed expectations for the quarter. And I mean, I I couldn't find anything in that report that wasn't impressive. Not just that it was good, but that just wasn't just like off the charts impressive. So I mean, they had a great quarter. They're not going to keep it up. This is. <laughs> they're not going to have you know record after record after record. This is a product of the times. Yeah. But I, as far as this earnings season, I have to give the title to Goldman. All right. Well, for the quarter, Goldman takes the gold. Uh, Matt, before we wrap things up, as we like to do when time allows, we want to give our listeners one to watch for the coming week. And given that earnings season is now um, kicked into full gear, we should have plenty to watch. What is your one stock that you're watching this week? Uh, one of my favorite smaller banks is uh, Live Oak Bank Corp, or Bank Shares rather. Uh, ticker symbol is LOB. They are a small business lender. They also have a high yield deposit platform online. They're a really specialized small business lender and one of the biggest small business administration SBA lenders in the country. And they really got a nice tailwind from the pay- the PPP loans. And they're really a relationship-focused bank, and I think that's going to really pay dividends in a time like this, where they they really know their customers well. They have a history of having a much lower default rate than their peers, and I think this is where this is the environment where you really need that. So I'm watching what they have to say when they put out their earnings. I think it's Wednesday, but I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly you know, the date. We, I think it's Wednesday. We had the the president of the bank, Huntley Garriott, on the on the show a little while back too. That was a lot of fun. That need to need to reach out to see if they want to come back on and, and talk to us about the the state of banking these days, particularly for smaller banks. I too am going to go with a smaller bank. Um, shocker, Ameris Bank Corp. I'm sure listeners uh, remember that one. <laughs> I've mentioned it once or twice on the show. Um, but yeah, Ameris Bank Corp. Earnings will will come out Thursday this this Thursday after the market closes. Uh, then I believe they have a call Friday morning. Um, so really, just just excited to see you know what what is going on with the company. Uh, you know metrics that we pay attention to, looking at total assets, total deposits. Um, looking at total assets, they're just just under twenty billion uh, from a quarter ago. Uh, so so we'll see how how growth is looking there. Um, another another point to focus on, I think, and this really had a lot to do with the Fidelity acquisition they made. Is that you know the, the percentage of of profits that that or the percentage of deposits rather that are non interest bearing right I mean the more non interest bearing deposits the the more you know the more they're able to bring down to the bottom line and and that was part of that acquisition um, they noted that last quarter non interest bearing deposits made up thirty six percent of total deposits up from thirty percent. Um, from a year ago, so we'll see where that stands this this quarter as well. Um, and then for me, really the big point of focus, and, and they talked about this on the call a little bit, is now that they've digested the Fidelity acquisition, there is certainly uh, you know the the chance of another acquisition happening at some point or another. And and they're thinking they're thinking big. Um, I mean, they're talking about anywhere from two and a half billion dollars up. So you know that that could be a very interesting situation, kind of like a Teladoc Lavongo merger of equals, perhaps uh, in the future for Ameris. But we'll be very interested to see uh, what management has to say there. Um, you know, it's not been the greatest time for banks, but uh, I remain a very happy shareholder of Ameris. I'm happy to be patient with them. I, I like what they're doing. I, I trust management there, and, and I think that uh, 
they have a lot of opportunities to grow. Very community focused, just like uh, Live Oak, just just like you talked about there, Matt. Uh, but I think that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Matt, I appreciate you taking the time to jump on again and uh, give us all of that great insight as to the five bigs from last week, what you thought of their quarters. I'm sure listeners uh, are thankful as well for, for all that great information. Appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Always fun to talk banks with you. Yep, absolutely. And that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. We always want to hear what you have to say. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 